I'm going to stand down here this morning if that's okay. If you can't see me, it's probably better for you anyway. I'm kind of funny looking. This morning, we're going to continue on our study in Revelation, but we're going to divert slightly in that I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture that we've continually been talking about out of Revelation chapter 20. And out of that passage come a lot of questions that aren't directly answered in that question. So here's what I want to invite you to do this morning. Have your Bibles ready. And second, be willing to research because a lot of the ground that we're going to cover this morning uh, is based on Orthodox Christian tradition as they've interpreted the, the, the scriptures over the centuries. Here's what I mean by that. There were some things that we don't quite understand how it all fits together. And I am a little man with a little mind. And as best as I can, I will explain to you as the research that I've done and what God has laid on my heart to share with you about questions like what happens that first minute after we die? That's a big question for people. What is it like? What about this idea of soul sleep or purgatory? Is that a scripture thing? What do we do when Jesus says they're sleeping? So we're going to wrestle with that a little bit this morning, and we're going to try to do it in 30 minutes or less. Okay? So here's the invitation. Take the words that are given this morning. Look at the scriptures. Study yourselves to show yourself approved and learn with me. That's my invitation. I don't have all the answers, but I know the Holy Spirit will guide us and will teach us. And as we go through, if you're a good student, you might recognize some of the content that I give today. I've leaned heavily on scholars before me, everybody from Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis to Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, which many of you may have read, to uh, Erwin Lutzer's book uh, aptly titled, What Happens One Minute After You Die, uh, to a few other books here and there. So I'm not giving you a lot of original ideas today. I'm not that creative. Uh, And there's a lot of people out there that uh, God has inspired to share with. So we're going to walk through some of that today. Let's pray as we dive in. There's your introduction for what's coming. And let's dive into the scriptures together this morning. Lord, thank you that you are at work. My heart uh, just yearns for revival among the Lisu people this morning. I know we need revival all, all over the place, but we've just heard from... Uh, David, this morning, and I I, I thank you that you are taking your light through men and women that love you into those villages and into those sides of the mountain, and I ask that you would work mightily. But Lord, I also pray for our hearts right here in Hong Kong. There is much that we can worry about. There is much that consumes and concerns and worries. I pray that we would lay that at your feet and that we would go where you want us to go, and that while we may face death all day long, we do it for your name's sake, whatever that might mean. And so, Lord, I pray that my words would be few this morning. I pray for clarity of mind for all of us, that we would wrestle with and reason together as we look at uh, just briefly your word, uh, but open our hearts that we might respond and we might fall deeper in love with you and show that love to a world that's desperately in need of real love, authentic love. In this we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, 
and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. We don't usually like that verse. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Hence, what is the first death? And we'll try to look at that a little bit. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Last week, we wrestled with the the, the fuller content of this passage and the reality of hell. Hell being real, hell being a place of suffering and torment, hell being a place where those that have chosen not to believe on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are condemned to. We wrestled with the idea that the, the Greek and the traditional languages can be a little confusing on whether it's annihilation or punishment and what that means, and the Lord will work it out. But what we do know is hell is separation from the light and life and love of God for all eternity. And that is not something we should wish upon our worst enemy. And that is not my desire. And God... It was not his will for any to be lost. Sent his son. Uh, You started this week, if you're following with us in our Bible reading plan, the wonderful book of John. Uh, Just such a powerful and emotional and different take on the Gospels than the other three synoptics. But in, in John, you read at the beginning that he, being fully God, made his dwelling among us out of great love, great compassion, and great justice and mercy for us. So what I want us to do this morning is I want to consider what's, what we're invited into, what waits for us, and what's in the intermediate between now and the return of Christ. Because these are questions that you will be asked. And these are questions that I wrestle with and that has been a struggle. So if you looked at me all morning, I've been nervous and shaking because this is, this is heavy ground. But I want to start with an illustration to try to bring the big picture of facing death for a Christian into a a small lens. And I want to do that because, you know, this season is the last season of American Idol, and many of you are mourning that, aren't you? If you know what American Idol is, it's this silly talent show where people, uh, yes, I said silly, um, but track with me for a minute where people get up and they sing and they're judged and there's a mean judge and a nice judge and a middle judge that nobody listens to and you go through this process well in the beginning years of that was right about when melissa and i had moved to the wonderful city of hong kong and at that point dory and i used to sit back to back and then the second year i had a little office that was right next to her so i would look at her through a window and there was only about that much space between our faces And so uh, as she would prepare for the weekend on Friday afternoon, every Friday, Mike would pull out Music Friday. And uh, as we would watch and discuss American Idol, I don't remember of what day of the week it was on back then. Any help, Melissa? Wednesday. So we would go in, and by Friday, we would know who got the... And by the third, fourth, or fifth season, I I don't know how many, don't fact check me on this, there was a guy on there that we really liked, and his name was Chris Daughtry. Ah, some of you have been followers, you know who you are. (laughs) And as he was leaving, he sang a song called Home, because he didn't win. 
And that became the you got kicked off, you're fired American Idol song. And in it, he said, I'm going home to a place where I belong. And that song very much encompassed the American Idol experience because for however long that show went, those people were kind of sequestered on their own away from their families, away from their friends in, I believe, Hollywood or Los Angeles or somewhere around there. So while it was bittersweet, they had lost their chance at fame and fortune and, you know, a recording contract and signing away their lives to a record company. They did get to go home. They did get to go back to their family. They did get to go back to what was truly home for them, where they belonged, because living in Hollywood wasn't their end destination. For those of us in Christ Jesus, the bodies we find ourselves in right now and the homes you live in, for instance, I live at uh, House A, Green Villas, 11 Chowo Road, Taimong Chai, Saikung, New Territories, Hong Kong. That is my address. That is not my home. Because my body doesn't work very well. And I can't wait for Jesus to call me home to where I will be enjoying him forever. However, it is a bittersweet thought. And that's okay. Because the other side of it is that God has given me a blessed family here. If you were in Christ, I will enjoy eternity with you. And I look forward to that. But there are very real relationships that I don't know what they'll look like in eternity. So there's uncertainty for me. I know I will enjoy them. I know based on some of the scriptures we'll look at, my personality will continue on. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, There's the good parts of it. But that Mike will be Mike. That you will be you. But as we walk through this, what happens to a Christ follower when Christ calls us home? And that's a scary thing. And, And Paul also referenced this time and again. And at one point, he actually said, I face death every day. And then again, if you've been following along in your Bible reading, you read uh, this week on him defending how many times he had been stoned one time, how many times he'd been beaten and flogged numerous times, how many times he'd had to flee a city in a basket once. He had been shipwrecked for a day and a half. He'd been bitten by a snake. All of these things happened. This was a man that knew suffering and knew torture, yet he said, I consider all of this a lot, but for the... All of this a loss, but for the... but for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And Paul also mentioned time and again, I long to leave here and be with Jesus. And the the reference there was the idea of departure. And so Paul looked forward to departing and being with God in a, a different way. So what does it mean to face death for a Christ follower? We know Paul didn't fear it, and uh, whoever wrote Hebrews understood that teaching and gave us this, because the fear of death is eliminated for those in Christ. Why? Well, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Because of who Jesus Christ is, we have no reason to fear death any longer if we have called on the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That deserves an amen. Good try. Well done. 
That's good. Those of you that said it, thank you for not leaving me hanging. What does that look like in reality? That looks like this lit candle right here. Why do I talk about that? Because yesterday afternoon, in this very room, a couple ladies were having a conversation. It came out, one didn't know Jesus Christ. Lo and behold, now she does. She was invited into knowing Jesus and believing on him, confessing her sins. She has been forgiven. She has been redeemed. And she will spend eternity in glory with Jesus. That deserves an amen and an applause, does it not? We do not fear death any longer in Christ. That is at the heart of the gospel message. And it's important for us to remember that. We may not understand how everything works, but death has already been conquered. Its sting has been taken away by Jesus Christ. We couldn't conquer it. We couldn't fix ourselves. Jesus has done that for us. And so in our journey home, we understand that it is not a fearful journey for us in Christ. Remember that. It is not a fearful journey for those in Christ. It also means a departure. Uh, At the moment of... um, When Jesus was on the top of the hill and he brought along a couple of disciples, you can find out more about this story in Luke chapter 9. But he's up there and two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, his departure from the physical earth that he was living on in a human body which he was about to bring fulfillment at Jerusalem. This is right before he was crucified, dead, buried, and raised victoriously over sin and death once for all. Now, this gives us this picture that death signifies a departure from this life. And I want to flesh out a couple of things as best I can and give you some context. Think about back, if you're re- again, if you're reading the Bible with us this year, you've read through the story of Moses, and you're reading through him giving the laws now, but just as Moses, this is Erwin um, Lutzer's words, just as Moses led his people out of slavery, now Christ has passed through his own Red Sea, routing the enemies and preparing to lead his people to the promised land. His exodus is proof that he can safely conduct us all the way from earth to heaven. Neither is it then fearful for us to make our final exodus, for we are following the leader who has gone on ahead. Remember, Jesus says, I am going on ahead to prepare a place for you, and we'll come to that. He's gone on ahead to prepare for us to depart. When the curtain parts, we shall not only find him on the other side, but discover he is the one who led us there in the first place. We don't have to be afraid. Our departure means life. It means healing. I was talking with Christy Leitz before the service, and she said the only other time she had come in contact with me was when my family was suffering loss last summer, and I was preparing to head back to be with my family. And while we mourn the loss of dad, Melissa's dad, we celebrate that he is with Jesus. And I have no question in my mind that that's where he is. We weren't excited about the road that he suffered through, but we know God has him. So 
as we walk through that, it brings up an interesting question that I want to talk about, and it's kind of a side note, but it's one that you're often brought to, or if a non-Christian is asking you, well, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus went down and preached to the condemned? Yes, it does. That would be 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. Looking at, uh, in context, uh, judgment uh, for all uh, and a few other things. But in 1 Peter 3.19, after being made alive, referring to Jesus Christ, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Some of your Bibles say there that he preached to the spirits. Now, this has lent itself for centuries to all sorts of questions. One, what does it mean he made a proclamation or he preached to the saints? Or not to the saints, it was not saints, to the imprisoned. Well, that, the next question then becomes, who were the imprisoned? And so as I've been reading and as I've been trying to study this, what does this mean? If you know the Apostles' Creed, this, is, this verse is at the heart of when it says he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. This is part of where the apostles uh, got that phrasing from and how they put that into the very creed. So what I want to do is I want to ask, well, how have we in Christianity uh, understood that throughout the 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 history of the church. And so there's five main interpretations that I want to give you. These are not mine. <laughs> These are church history 101 uh, that we have believed and that I will tell you which I believe to be the most accurate. And if it makes you feel better, I asked my daddy and he agreed. Just, you know, trying to lighten the mood as we face death together. The five main interpretations, R.C. Sproul spreads it out this way. He says first, uh, in Interpretation number one, the spirits in prison are the people to whom Christ preached during his earthly ministry, for his work involved proclaiming liberty to the captives. Uh, you would find that in Luke four sixteen through 21. Explanation number two might be that Christ by the Holy Spirit preached through Noah. That's 2 Peter 2, 5. Uh, Peter loved to talk about Noah. He did it repeatedly. To the people before the flood, Genesis 6 through 8, Noah called them to repentance, but they disobeyed and are now imprisoned. The point of Peter's argument would then be that as God vindicated Noah, then by sending the judgment, Noah proclaimed. He will vindicate Christians when he judges the world according to the Christian proclamation. Okay, a lot of vindication in there. Uh, closer, I think. Uh, point number three or opinion number three that's gone through church history. Christ preached in the short interval between his death and resurrection during a descent into hell. Now we know Christ suffered. Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? That is very real anguish, suffering and despair. Don't discount that of the very humanity and the very reality of what Jesus was facing for you and I. That was tremendous forsake. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you cast me aside? And he's saying that to his father. Imagine your child saying that to you. It would just be heartbreaking. But that's what that descent into hell gives us a, a picture of what it might be like. It is said that Christ announced his victory to the spirits of Noah's wicked contemporaries confined in the realm of the dead. Points three, four, and five are all going to sound qu quite similar, just with slightly different attention points. Verse, uh, the, the fourth one, a similar idea is that during the same interval, Christ proclaimed his victory to fallen angels. 
uh, often identified with the sons of God of Genesis 6, 2 uh, and verse 4, and also in Job 1 and 2, in their place of confinement. So Jesus, again, going into a lost people and saying, look at what you gave up on. Look at who you missed out on letting them see again what they'd missed. Now, that's a hard truth, but yet wouldn't the absolute epitome of suffering being able to see what we have lost by choosing to go our own way and seeing the glory of God just out of our reach because we said he doesn't exist or because we said he's not real or we don't need him, we have all we need? And the final interpretation of uh, Jesus preaching to the imprisoned is Christ proclaimed his victory to fallen angels after the resurrection at the time of his ascension into heaven. Now, I cannot stand up here and with a clear conscience, my uh, biblical language's strength isn't good enough that I can go and I can say with any authority, any of the last three are the exact right interpretation. Because this much I have learned in my spiritual journey, where there are three options or five options that man has come up with, God is working in a whole different box. And it might look completely different. But this is what I am quite comfortable of and quite confident in sharing with you. The point of the interpretations is that just as Jesus was vindicated, victorious over sin once for all, so will all Christians be vindicated uh, and redeemed once for all. Okay? What does it mean that he went down and he proclaimed? I believe it meant the the subject of who he went to, either the fallen angels, the people of noatic time, or the people that didn't respond to his word that had walked the earth in that very time of his death and resurrection. In any case, they had to face what they had rejected. And they had to look at it. And they had to deal with the suffering of the majesty that they were leaving behind and that there was no redemption for them. It's not easy to wrestle with that. When it says that the truth was proclaimed, that Jesus proclaimed to them, it doesn't give us any indication. And throughout the rest of Scripture, there's no indication that they got to respond, that they got to change their state, moving from one state of condemnation into a state of redemption. Uh, throughout the scriptures, that seems to happen here on earth while you are in physical bodies, not after that. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 16, what about the condemned? Well, we're given a great picture there, and I know I am jumping and trying to cover a lot of ground, but Jesus, if he's preached to the condemned, we understand that for the unbeliever, death brings suffering that is conscious but incomplete. What do I mean by that? Well, in Luke 16.31, we see that um, Jesus tells the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is suffering in what they, they term as, um, well, they term it as suffering. And he looks up and he says, can, can, can he just give me a touch of water? And if they can't do that, well, then, Lord, can can you just send him down to tell my family? And what is the response there in Luke 16? If they weren't convinced already, they won't be convinced now. And the whole thing doesn't give any hope that the rich man thought he could somehow bridge the gap moving from death to life after he had already passed away. 
That's a difficult passage. It's a difficult thing for us to wrestle with. Uh, again, R.C. Sproul says it like this, and his words uh, are a little more clear than mine. He says, mankind's probation ends at death. Our, ultimately, our ultimate destiny is decided when we die. There is no hope of a second chance of repentance after death. For as there, there is no, and there is no place of purging such as purgatory to improve our future condition. We can't give money or extra prayers for those that have already died is what he's saying. For the believer, death is immediate emancipation from the conflict and turmoil of this life as we enter into our state of blessedness. For the unbeliever, it is the beginning of suffering for eternity. And that's a difficult thing. The unbeliever faces separation from God. The unbeliever faces reality that the majesty of Jesus was before them and presented to them, and they chose not to respond. And the believer sees Jesus and is brought into the fold. So then the question becomes, What about those that Jesus says are sleeping? Twice, he refers to those that have passed away as sleeping. And and that has brought out not only the idea of purgatory, where your souls are in a place of penance for a while, and if enough happens, you might be then moved into a heavenly state, but also the idea of soul sleep, while you're in a holding pattern, uh, that time is no longer... Uh, present between now and the return of Christ. So you're just sort of in an interstellar uh, oblivion. You're, you're not conscious. But that seems unrealistic with how Jesus taught and, and what we see because we want to talk about the intermediate state. And that's this question. That's what we're talking about now. This idea of okay, when we die, Jesus looked at the, the convicted criminal. Uh, next to him on the cross, and he said, what, today you will be with me in glory. Okay? So we've got that, but yet we know that he has not yet returned and resurrected the bodies of all those who have followed him, correct? So this gets a little confusing. So what I want to try to do is, again, I want to try to give an example uh, from the very physical world and then try to open it up as best I can. Uh, Many of you know I grew up a tennis player. And in the early years, uh, I was learning. So I was put in a class called the intermediate class. Now, that was not the end goal. The end goal for me was not to be in the intermediate class. The end goal for me was to be on television playing tennis. Making it to the super advanced, the elite class. The goal was not to stay where I was then. Even now, I still want to improve my tennis. One, because I'm getting old and I'm starting to put on some weight and so I need to burn that off. But two, I know I can continually improve. I know this isn't the best I can be as a tennis player. Now, you can fill in the blank with anything you do, whether it's uh, we've got pilots and teachers and uh, IT people in the room. We've got uh, all sorts of business people in the room. We've got wonderful vocational people, people that love music. Uh, We've got students of all sorts of music. We've got students of languages. And, And no matter what you study or what you do, while we're on this earth, we know we could always improve, correct? We know there's always better. 
If you happen to be watching tennis right now, you're seeing a man play tennis named Novak Djokovic. That might mean nothing to you, and that's great because I'm not a big fan. Sorry, those of you that like him. He's, but he is a m- meticulously attentive player to detail. And he is at the top of his game, and he almost never loses. But you know what? When he's interviewed, he always wants to talk about, one, I did the best I could. I played my best, but I'm going to keep working to try to get better. Now, let's try to bring that around to this idea of the intermediate state we find ourselves in. Between death for us as a human and the return of Christ, which ushers in the new heavens and the new earth that we talked about a few weeks ago, there is a time where we are enjoying the presence of the Lord. Okay? What do I mean by that? Well, let's let's say it like this. This is, again, R.C. Sproul says, the state of the believer after death is both different and better than what we experience in this life. Okay, you with me so far? After death, oops, sorry, for the Christ follower, the state of eternity is better than what you've got right now. Okay? Better than what you had while you were still physically alive. Though death brings rest to the soul... And the Bible always, often refers to death by the euphemism of sleep. It is not proper oop, to refer to the intermediate state of the soul uh, as sleep or that we remain unconscious or in a state of suspended animation. Okay, so we're not just kind of like frozen in a coffin somewhere or something like that. However, what I believe it means is in the intermediate state, we will enjoy the continuity of conscious personal existence and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ that has not yet been physically completed or consummated. Now, huh? You want me to say that again? Let me break it down. Okay. When Christ returns, he will raise the dead to life, correct? Does that mean we who have died are not currently enjoying the presence of Jesus right now? No, or else why would Jesus have said, today you will be with me in glory? It gets confusing. And if you want to argue, there there is some ways you can change the grammar in the Greek, uh, which doesn't seem consistent with anything written there. But here's what I mean. While we wait for the return of Christ, we are enjoying the glory of the Lord. But the fullness of that glory has not yet been consummated. That does not happen, as we see in Revelation, until the return, the great white throne judgment, and therefore the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth, the conquering of death, Hades, and hell once for all, and the welcoming in to the life we have been invited to live for all eternity. Another way to look at it is if heaven is what is meant for all eternity, that while we're there in what we call the intermediate state, think of that in a term the Bible uses, paradise. Okay? Does that help? Paradise is a temporary precursor to what is coming for all eternity. That's the simplest explanation I've been able to come with, and I've got to thank Mr. Albert Chang for helping wire my mind toward that uh, a little bit. But essentially, what that brings us to is that we will be given physical bodies. That's what the Bible tells us. But while we are in this intermediate state, our soul is fully alive, but our physical bodies are asleep. 
That's the best way I can explain it. Now, there are lots of interpretations. There's lots that goes with it, but I believe that follows concisely with what the scripture says because listen to what Jesus himself says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Eventually, all will have to give an account for their actions. And in the interim state, in that intermediate state, oops, we're looking forward to what is yet to come while also fully enjoying the glory of paradise now. But it's just going to get better when he returns and when he ushers in all that's new. Now, I know that's confusing, and I wrestle with it, and we also have to look at the fact that when we have passed away, do we enter into how God looks at time where a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? That is an excellent question. And for us in eternity, I believe that, yes, we won't notice time going by in the same way. So this intermediate state may not feel like anything at all. But no one on this side of eternity can explain exactly how it's going to look. So I want you to keep wrestling with it. And I want you to keep considering that, yes, we will enjoy the very glory of the Lord if you've believed on Christ at the moment of death. But what will happen to us in that intermediate state, I believe, will be something glorious. And we wait for the culmination of that at his return. So let's go on to other images used to give us pictures of the journey home. And we're given this picture of a sailing ship. I'm torn between the two. And these are Paul's words again. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Again, it's this picture of departure, this desire to be traveling. Uh, and the word depart was used for loosing of an anchor. Uh, one, one commentary that I forgot to lay said, to weigh anchor and to put out to sea, to leave behind the weight, the bondage of this world and move into glory with God. And, and I think of this image of the anchor that cannot be moved. And that's a powerful one for me because in in this body, if I put my reason and my hope all in myself, I will be disappointing not only myself, but those around me. But the thing is, we are taught very clearly that our anchor holds. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters in, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, referring to the Holy of Holies where our forerunner, Jesus, forerunner, one who has gone before us, has entered on our behalf. Remember that. He did this on our behalf. He did this for us, for the glory of God. God sent him to carry out a mission, and he did it that we might be redeemed. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek we sing a wonderful song that goes like this. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Fill in the blank, what comes next? All other ground is sinking sand. Our rock, our very foundation is on Jesus Christ who cannot be moved. And it is in him we find all of our life, we find all of our meaning, all of our purpose, and we find that he cannot be moved. He has already conquered the storms of life. And he says, rest in me because mine is the anchor that holds. We have an anchor of the soul, 
a hope that is both sure and steadfast. What does that mean? It means we don't cast our anchor on anything within ourselves. We seek our security neither in feelings nor experiences. We seek our security in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So then, as we finish up for today, I want you to look at one more point and then we, we close. But not so long ago, I was given a new ID card. You know what's different about this identification card? One, there we go. Anybody that hasn't lived here their whole lives knows it. It says permanent. You know what that means? Yeah, it happened a few years ago, but yeah, I am very excited about it. And it's great. It means you can't get rid of me. And I love that. But my permanent resident, I don't have to live in America, which right now seems like a really good thing. But permanent residency means that I don't need special permission to live here for just a time and get a visa and get stamped and wonder every time if it's going to come through. It came through. I keep paying my taxes and they're going to let me stay. However, Hong Kong is not my permanent home. My permanent residency is not on that slide. There we go. Jesus said this, in my father's house, oh, I learned a different version. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Isn't that what we long for? To be where he is? Isn't that what we're excited about? To be with him? I don't know what my mansion is going to look like. You know what I think my mansion might look like? That. (laughs) Because the Bible teaches us that our fleshly bodies are like a tent. And I think that's pretty awesome because I love living in a tent. But that's not permanent. Permanence happened right there. When Jesus paid the price for our sins and he invited all who would believe on him to be freed from sin and death once for all. What will the intermediate state look like? I don't know exactly. I don't believe soul sleep is a real thing and I don't believe purgatory is how it works. I do, however, believe that we are going to enjoy the very presence of Christ from the moment we take our last breath for all eternity for those in Christ Jesus. The best way I can close to finish that is by an illustration Erwin Lutzer gives. And he talks about a a friend of his, Donald Gray Barnhouse, on the way home from the funeral of his first wife, was trying to think of some way of comforting his children. Just then, a huge moving van passed by their car, and its shadow swept over them. Instantly, Barnhouse asked, Children, would you rather be run over by a truck or its shadow? The children replied, of course, we'd prefer the shadow. To which Barnhouse replied, 2,000 years ago, the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus. Now, only the shadow of death can run over us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou. I learned the old school version. Thou art with me. For those of us in Christ, we have no fear.
there are questions that are myriad, and I'm sure I probably raised more as we've gone on this morning. But as we respond and as we take our offering this morning, I pray that one, you would be sure of who you are in Christ Jesus. Two, that you would be sure you are doing everything you can to be salt and light to those around you, whether you think they deserve it or not. So let's pray and I'll call the worship team forward as we prepare for the offering. Lord, the reality of the cross and your victory over death once for all puts us in a place where we can say with all certainty, our lives are hidden in you and our destiny is secure. Please let us be salt and light to those that have not yet come to that place. Father, forgive me if I've taken liberties with your word that weren't meant to be taken. But I pray that we would begin to understand the joyful anticipation of eternity with you while we might not understand exactly how the pieces are going to fit together. God, I pray that your words would burn within us and that mine would fall by the wayside. But most importantly, may our anchor be found only in you. May we be overwhelmed by your greatness and your majesty. And now as we give our tithes and offerings, would you be pleased with our worship of giving back what you have given to us?